Welcome to Off-Leash Arts, Conversations on Creativity. I'm your host, Tanya Schaefer. In today's episode, I interview Carol Lloyd, the woman who quite literally wrote the book on sculpting a creative life for yourself. The book I'm referring to is called Creating a Life Worth Living, Career Counseling for the Creatively Inclined, which came out in 1997 and is still going strong. Since this podcast is about creativity, we'll be focusing our conversation on the book's insights and lessons about balancing the creative drive with the practical necessities of living in the world and how the ideas in the book have stood the test of time. Currently, Carol is the VP and Editorial Director for Great Schools, a national nonprofit focused on parenting and education, and she's also host of the Great Schools sponsored podcast, Like a Sponge. Before that, she was an award-winning columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle and edited the education section of Salon.com. Her work has appeared in the New York Times Magazine and on the radio show This American Life, and she's been featured on NPR's Talk of the Nation, PRI's The World, and KQED's Forum and To the Best of Our Knowledge. She's also a mom of two. So Carol, welcome to Awfully Sharts. Thank you. So good to be here. I should add as well that Carol and I have been friends since 1994 when she was running a business called The Writing Parlor and offering writing workshops out of her home in San Francisco. And she and I took several workshops together from the incredible novelist Jonathan Lethem. In fact, she talked me into taking that workshop with Jonathan Lethem when I called. <laughs> yeah, no, it was it was very fortuitous phone call. And I remember just feeling like I'm not really much of a saleswoman, but in this situation, I just was going to sell you hard because I knew it was the right, right decision. <laughs> and it was, it was absolutely the right decision. Jonathan was amazing and it led to our friendship. Yeah. So um, it's been almost 25 years since your book, Creating a Life Worth Living came out and that kind of blows my mind, but tell us the story of how you came to write this book. Well, Soon after college, I was surrounded by all these different types of artists and creative people, people who wanted to sort of pursue their own path, whether it was through pursuing an art form or starting a new nonprofit, or they kind of were straddling different fields. They weren't doing a thing like going to graduate school that led to a specific profession or going back and getting a technical degree and doing something where the path was really clear. Mm. And so I just started having conversations with people. I started trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. And I started talking to friends and strangers about those decisions. Like how were they figuring out how to earn a living and pursue the thing that they wanted to do? How are they balancing their time? So these conversations sort of turned into a process. And this was before life coaching existed and before positive psychology existed. So the people I know that were confused about their lives, they were all in talk therapy, like on the couch doing a psychoanalysis. There wasn't all these other methods of like trying to figure out what you're doing with your life and how you're making decisions that there are now. And so I started doing this process with friends and that turned into a workshop and then the workshop turned into a book. Wasn't there a story 
did you write to Julia Cameron? Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I wrote her out of the blue. You know, I'd read her book, The Artist's Way. Which is a book on creativity that's still also very popular that suggests creating a daily writing practice. Yeah. I wrote her out of the blue and to her credit, she wrote back immediately and said, why don't you write a book about this? And, you know, contact me when you have. And then I was like, okay, I'll do it. And I wrote a draft of the book and I contacted her. I never heard back and that's fine. But by putting it out there in the world, I had gotten this very clear directive, which was interesting because I took it really seriously. Yeah, I remember that from all those years ago. Like, wow, Julia Cameron told her to write a book and she did. (laughs) I'm sure my mother had told me to write a book at some point. (laughs) Right. Carol, write a book. And, you know, we should listen to our mothers, but we don't always listen to our mothers. Well, it is kind of amazing how there's a certain synchronicity when someone says something at a certain time that somehow resonates yeah. and it right. just, it's what you needed to catalyze that moment. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you to read a passage from the book for our listeners that I think gets at something really important. This is from the section called Exploring Your Possible Futures, which is designed to help people visualize how they truly want to be spending their lives. Okay. Waiting for an idea from a guru or a god, a career counselor or an older sister, discounts the one innate clue we are all given to our possible purpose in life, our desire. Many of us grow up being told that we have two basic choices in life, leave behind our desires in order to survive or risk survival in order to pursue our desire. We may discount our desires and dreams as selfish or impossible, and probably some of them are, but maybe our desire is the last trace of the universe's desire for us. Maybe our desire is our only clue to navigate this labyrinth of life, and by ignoring it, we have about as much chance of finding the right path as the minotaur in its maze. If nothing else, it's worth entertaining the notion that desire is not a capricious tick of immaturity, but an invitation to action with an elevated consciousness. Mm, I love that. It sounds like maybe a lot of what you were doing in the workshops was helping people to get past some basic conditioning that prevented them from even allowing themselves to deeply dream or imagine the life they wanted. Did did you find that? Yeah. I feel like now looking back, the people I was working with fell into two kind of categories. The people who had been so structured so early in life, and some of them were very accomplished, but they couldn't dream. They were so hard on themselves and their accomplishments were based on reining themselves back. So sometimes they were very accomplished in more conventional worlds. I would have someone who was a doctor who always wanted to write but they couldn't let themselves. And then the other hand, people who were really prodigious dreamers and they had trouble with structure. And so I felt like I was trying to create a process to loosen up those who were always renting themselves in and didn't even allow themselves to develop that imagination muscle. And those who were 
so focused on just imagining possibilities that they couldn't like break it down into steps and start taking actions. And so they were constantly in that sort of early generation phase, which is really exciting at the beginning, but then becomes demoralizing when you don't start to move along a path. So I was trying to create a process that would support both problems, really. And did you keep in touch with students over the years? You led a lot of people through this. And I'm wondering if you've seen some of them go on to build these creative lives and maybe some have not and whether there are certain threads that you see like, okay, this kind of person continued and this kind of person sort of fell by the wayside. Yeah. It's been interesting too, because since the book's been out for so long, I get emails from people, you know, like telling me their career story and how the book changed what they were doing and how they were doing it. So that's been super gratifying. I remember one woman who was a little bit all over the place, but she was very like earnest, very serious sort of approach the whole process, humbly did all the practices. But when she arrived, she really didn't have a clear focus. And by the end, she had done these multiple life paths. And what if I did this career? And what if I pursued that passion? And she had sort of mapped it all out. And she said, now I think I'd like to be an experimental composer which has got to be one of the most (laughs) ambitious and obscure career paths. And at that point, she wasn't someone who had been raised and knew how to play for instruments or anything. She didn't have like a, a super classical career background in music. She did some bongo drumming on the side and she did some like composition, but she told me that she was going to apply to this program on the East Coast that only takes like two or three people a year, a graduate program in experimental composition. And then she got in and she became a composer. And I thought that was so beautiful because it was just the example of by going through a process, by giving yourself time to think about this stuff, you can make some clear decisions. If you're clear about what you want, even some of the most sort of difficult choices open up possibilities. And I think she was great story because she wasn't someone I would be like, oh, well, she's always succeeded in every single thing she's done. Boy, she's a real firecracker. You know, Mm -hmm. there were those sorts of people where you go, okay, they succeeded in school and then they succeeded in a career and now they're going to succeed in art because that's what they do. Right. And that's a little bit different. This person, she approached the process super systematically. Mm. And so I feel like she got so much out of it. And I've also seen people, I've seen people use it to make a choice between two very conventional careers. I had a friend who used it to decide between whether or not she wanted to be a therapist or a lawyer. And Mm. what was underlying that was that she wanted to do something that was driven by empathy. And ironically, she chose law, but with this clear perspective on now she works for the Innocence Project. And so she's been getting people off death row for the last 20 years. But I think if she hadn't gone through that process, in a more conventional career counseling situation, they might have said, well, you're obviously destined to be a therapist. 
Yeah, that's really cool. So then it really could work for anyone because it's really just about discovering your core values and how to make them align with what you're doing in the world. Right. And if you think about a lot of lawyers probably go into law because they think it's a a clear practical career. And Mm -hmm. for her, it was a mission driven career. And she stayed in touch with that because it was really clear why she was doing it. Oh, that's cool. So backing up a little, when you wrote the book, you were in your early 30s and you described how you partly came to this practice because you were using it on yourself. You had a million things you wanted to do and your mom, who was really awesome, got you to write down three possible career paths and then to imagine yourself five 10 and 20 years down the road, and then advised you to choose the one you were most passionate about, which wasn't what you were thinking, right? You were thinking, well, I should do this stable path. But when she said that you chose the road of art and writing and creativity, and in those early days, after having made that choice, you wrote, my long-term commitment to following my passion was the single gift I would fall back on when all the other gifts, luck, discipline, inspiration seemed to let me down. So I'm wondering how you see that choice all these years later, whether that kernel still holds true, that that commitment to following your passion held all these years. And how does that initial spark align with your actual life at this moment? Is is yeah. it what you imagined? Um, well, I feel like I've lived a lot of different stages since I wrote that sentence. I probably wrote that in my early 30s. So by the time I was 35, I had a child and then another one. So suddenly I was thinking about career and stability in a different way. And I was thinking about parenting. And so I think what started out as abstract career paths and creativity, I think became much more like, okay, there's careers that will feel stable or not. And a career that would allow me to focus on being a parent. And I would say for the first 10 years of parenting, I really did like kind of a balancing act between creative work, creative work that paid and parenting. So Mm. it's kind of like this three plates in the air kind of thing. What was your job at that time? I was a columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle. So I got to write every week for my job. But then there was other writing projects on the outside of that. And then long story short, we moved to the cloud forest of Costa Rica as a family for like a completely different experience. And when I came back a year later without a job, without the column anymore, I just thought, I think I'm going to try having a real job, a real stable job. And That's when I became an editor where I am now, where I'm editorial director at grade schools. And I just went into a new stage of life where I was creative professional, but my job included even more plates in the air in terms Mm -hmm. of meetings and managing and writing things and editing and planning content strategies. And of late, 
I have gotten back to my passions in the form of a podcast that is part of great schools, but is really a passion project as well. And it's in its third season and was a very new form, but it really feels like coming home because it's like my favorite genre as a consumer. I love podcasts Mm -hmm. and as a writer and as someone who has an MFA in playwriting, Mm -hmm. but didn't totally love a lot of plays like had a, had a love hate relationship with the genre and then moved on and moved through creative nonfiction, writing a book, being a columnist, being an editor, moving through all these genres. Writing for audio is just my very favorite. Mm. So for me, it's, it's really lovely. And then this year we got some sort of validation and the third season has been nominated for some Webby Awards. So it's exciting, but it definitely feels psychologically like this coming home after definitely prioritizing other things that were not based on my creative journey, but on other values that I had, like taking care of my family, which became my priority. Makes total sense. You want to tell us a little more about your podcast? Sure. It's called Like a Sponge, and it's about the science of learning. It's for parents and educators. And the first season was sort of a smattering of coverage of all different things around the science of learning, the science of learning around testing, around the early adolescent brain, how we teach math or don't teach it well in America. The second season was all about character strengths. So we talked about love, gratitude, generosity, honesty, forgiveness, and that's the one that just got nominated. And then we're working on the third season now, and it's about the problem with high schools and how high schools need to change to reflect what will work for most students, what will be more equitable for all students, and how they need to evolve. I mean, high schools are sort of been the same for the last hundred years. That's great. Yeah, I can I can really see how the playwriting skills of developing a story, creating a narrative arc would work really well with a podcast because each episode is kind of its own little journey. Yeah. So, yeah. And cool. writing for audio is writing dialogue, essentially. So. Yeah. So in the book, you talk about a number of different creative types, some of which fall under the umbrella of collaborative creativity including leader, teacher, healer, interpreter, and then others under the umbrella of individual creativity, like generator, inventor, maker, mystic. And of course, as you say, most of us aren't just one of these. We have different combinations. So I'm curious, which of these categories do you place yourself in and how have they manifested in different parts of your own creative path? Yeah. So I started out as probably many artists do really, really focused on the value of myself as an individual creator. As a kid and as a young adult, I was very involved in dance theater and theatrical production. So that's a very collaborative process. But I think that as an identity, I was very focused on what I created. And The older I've gotten, the more interested and um, more excited I've become about collaborative creativity. And 
feeling like that's almost how I've been able to mature is to sort of grow those skills. But I wouldn't say that I've totally divested myself of individual creativity. I think it's probably where I'm happiest is when I'm just making something on my own. You used to teach quite a lot. Did you feel yourself to be a teacher or was that something you were more doing to support the other parts? You know, I really, really love teaching. I actually really took a lot of pleasure in it. So yeah, when I was young and I was, all my art was like sitting alone and writing, teaching was such a great balance working with individuals, working with groups was just a huge, huge part of what I needed in terms of my personality. And now I would say my podcast is a collaborative process. Almost everything I do is a collaborative process. And so I sometimes need a little more privacy and more individualism. But I think that these types are useful to sort of consider that there might be something that feels really natural and comfortable to you in your creative process, not to sort of define yourself as that permanently, can't do anything else, but to understand that a little bit better in terms of your own motivation and what you're identifying with. And sometimes I think people identify with something that is valued in society, but that actually isn't that comfortable for them. For instance, I encountered this all the time. The person who wanted to be a solitary artist, but was essentially an incredibly social person who really wanted to work with other people, but they had learned that being a solitary artist, an auteur, was really what was valuable. That's the way to be important. And so they had kind of devalued the thing that was more natural to them. And I think these types are good for sort of reflecting on that relationship. Like what is natural to you? What do you value? Is there a contradiction between what you value and what's natural? That's interesting. Yeah. It seems like a lot of people, like if someone writes humor really easily, then they're like, well, but I want to do my serious stuff, right? Like somehow we don't value what comes naturally or easily. It seems like. Right. And often that will be our best work. Right. Absolutely. People are often devalue the thing that is easy. They think it must not count if it really comes so easily to them. So I think it's a a legacy of our sort of Puritan nature that we've been taught that things have to be hard. Yeah. You wrote in the early part of the book that even established writers and artists, when you told them about this book said, oh, I need that. And I noticed that as I was rereading it, I was definitely thinking, wow, I need to do these exercises so I can improve my process and be more efficient and productive. And uh, I'm wondering Did you find that, that a lot of creative people, when you interviewed them, are still sort of struggling with and constantly redefining their own process, even decades into their careers? Yeah. You know, since then, I've read a lot about, uh, there's a whole world of science of purpose, of how people find their purpose. And this is very in line with that. And what they found in all the research on finding your purpose is that There isn't like two kinds of people, the kind that find their purpose and then the kinds that don't. It's the kind of people who spend time being in the process of finding their purpose and then people who don't. So 
what I found in interviewing these really extraordinary creative people was that's part of who they are. That's part of their creative process. It's not like they suddenly figured out what they would do and then that was it. They never thought again and nothing ever changed and they never had second thoughts and they never wavered and they never pursued a different path. It was that searching for your process, searching for your purpose was an integral part of their life. But I think a lot of people who are new to it, they think, oh, I'm struggling because I should just be on a path and go to work every day. Just like, you know, my dad did when he woke up and he went to the company job every day. Mm -hmm. But actually that lack of certainty and that self-reflection and thinking about, is this what I want to do? Who am I? Why am I doing this? What's the purpose in my life? But that is actually essential to any kind of creative process. You wrote in the book about the need for creative people to have a daily ecstatic task, something that you do each day, preferably around the same time, that gives your mind a time to roam. I'm wondering if you still have that in your own life and if so, what it is. Yeah. So I go through different stages where the task changes. And in the past year, it has been yoga for a while. It was meditation for a while. It was journaling for a while. And of late, it's been exercise-based because the pandemic has just made my life so much more sedentary. So for me, getting outside and moving my body has been the most important thing in terms of resetting and getting sort of back in alignment so that I can be motivated and be clear about what I am doing. But I think, you know, year to year and month to month, even I'm a little bit desultory. And so I read about something. I'm like, oh, I'm going to try that. I appreciate those people. I read about someone. I think he's the writer creator of that show Billionaires. It's like an HBO drama and billions. He does the Julie Cameron thing. He writes three pages every morning, has Mm -hmm. done it for decades. Mm. So I do think people find that one thing that they do and it just clicks in. I'm a little bit more of a um, novelty addict. New things are sometimes more fruitful for me than doing the same thing year after year. It's like half mental health, personal therapy, and resetting yourself. When you get to the end of a day, you're filled with all the things that have happened. So to like clean the slate again, and it's partly to set intentions, to have clarity about what it is that you're trying to do in this one moment in your life. Mm, Yeah. You talked about motivations as an important element to stay on a path, to keep reminding yourself of when you feel discouraged or dispirited. What do you feel like are your primary motivations in your work now? This is really interesting because recently I have started to do a study of the science of motivation around K-12 education. Like How does the science of motivation influence education? But I've been thinking about a lot in terms of myself because they suggest that there's four motivation drivers 
And one of them is purpose, like people who are very driven by understanding the why of what they're doing. Mastery, people who are very driven to be the best or to be very, very good at something. Mm. Autonomy, people who are very driven to do it themselves, to define it themselves. I am defining this project and doing the actual project that I want to do. And then the last one is belonging. So who am I doing this with and for? In reading about these and kind of reflecting on these, I realized that maybe in the past, I was a little bit more autonomy driven or purpose driven, but I am really belonging driven right now. I yearn for that kind of collaborative dream team working with other people. And so my motivation now is for my reader, for my listener, and for the people that I'm working with. Thinking about and understanding your own motivation, why you're doing what you're doing, all of those things that I mentioned, mastery, autonomy, belonging, and purpose might all be in the mix, but to understand like, what's the one thing that makes you want to do it? That is your predominant will driver, I think is really valuable because then you can keep in touch with that. Yeah. And what about just the joy of the work of the process? The doing. Can that be a purpose? I would say that's probably in this little constellation, all of those, you want to get to that place of flow. Mm-hmm. But when you're outside of the flow mm-hmm. and you are trying to get back there to motivate yourself to start, what are the things that are driving you to get back into the work? When it's not fun, when there's lots of obstacles, what makes you want to continue? Mm, yeah. One of the real highlights of the book is all the interviews you did with a wide range of artists and creators from all different disciplines, some of whom are very accomplished. Thinking back on all those interviews, I'm wondering if there's anything that stands out for you, any particular interview that was really revelatory or some common thread that you noticed across all of them. The only thing that I recall was that the most amazing people, the most amazing people were sometimes the most humble. I think it was Meredith Monk, who was just like at the peak of her career in every history book. And, you know, even though she's performance artist, not everybody's heard of her or whatever, but I realized that this is someone that is not just starting out being creative. Like they've had an entire creative career that has been so, you know, pathbreaking, but she was just incredibly humble. So hearing from so many people that were the most creative, their intellectual humility was really essential to how they sort of live their lives. Mm, that's really beautiful. And that kind of t- 
ties into a theme I noticed across a number of the interviews, which is that however far along these artists were in their careers, it was incredibly important to them to keep growing and exploring and to remain focused on the process of doing their art rather than on the external rewards. Yeah. And that external rewards are almost distracting. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's what I wanted to do in those interviews, because a lot of those people have been interviewed about their success, right? Where they're supposed to talk about their new product or their new performance. And it's more of a profile, but I really wanted to explore people's creative process. And a lot of people told me they'd actually never been asked those questions. Even people had been interviewed many, many times. And I think you realize that unless you're really interested in the process, unless you're curious and you're interested in the project that you're doing, even with a lot of accolades and awards, that's still not enough payoff. Like the only way for the creative life to refeed itself is for the actual process and the work to have intrinsic pleasure, value, meaning. And everyone goes through dry periods and tough periods. Even people with the most storied careers go through tough times and rejection is part of the work. So I think um, I interviewed my brother for the book. The painter, David Lloyd. Yeah. And, you know, he's in his sixties now and he's been an artist his entire life and he's had really hard times in his career and he's had really fruitful times in his career, but nothing gets in the way of his making art because that's what he loves to do. And that's how he thinks and that's how he works and that's who he is. And so he's like a great model of like this person, the process of making art is its own reward. Mm, Yeah. It kind of has to be. Yeah, it kind of has to be. (laughs) (laughs) Even if there are other rewards. (laughs) I think you would get to the others if it wasn't its own rewards. Yeah. And I think you see people in our society who are insanely creative and insanely talented and like in a very lucrative field. And then they hit, you know, a singer songwriter becomes famous or whatever. Those rewards are a threat to their creativity. They're a threat to their well-being. Huge blockbuster rewards in terms of selling a book or becoming a famous singer are not a path to more creativity. You know, we just see it. It's often a path to like emotional breakdown or feeling confused about how are you going to ever top yourself or, you know. Yeah, that's so strange since that's most people's vision of what they would like to have happen. It's yeah. Definitely a double-edged. Yeah. So if you were to revise or rewrite this book today, (laughs) is there anything you would add or that you would say that would be different in terms of advice for people looking to create a life worth living in this world? Whoa. Oh, yeah. So I thought about that a lot. Two things. One, parenting is a very creative endeavor, and it is a time-consuming and passion consuming endeavor. And so I think 
this is my book was very much the product of someone who had had no children. <laughs> so, so I'm sure that if I wrote it now, the reality of what it takes to be sort of a mindful parent and to bring your whole self to this 20 year or longer undertaking, I think I would layer in a lot more awareness that that is one of the things that human beings can do is to be parents. And it is a labor of love and a labor of creativity that we should discount or sideline. So that's one thing. And then the other thing I would say is coming out of college in the late 80s and the 90s, it didn't feel like we were facing sort of existential crises the way that we are now with the damage to our democracy, the threat from climate change, the income inequality, so many things that have made our social problems more dire and the threats to the planet more extreme. And very little of that was at sort of everyone's consciousness when I was writing the book. And I think that now I would be much more cognizant of the fact that it's really valuable not to just pursue your individual passion, but to figure out how your individual passions intersect with doing something that solves problems in the world. Because we all have to be problem solvers now. So I think the book would be a lot more politicized, a lot more aware that in this moment, Creativity in the service of a greater good is completely essential. Absolutely. Amen to that. Well, thank you so much, Carol. It's been so great to talk to you. This is really wonderful to talk to you. And thank you so much for listening to Off Leash Arts Conversations on Creativity. I'm your host, Tanya Schaefer. You can find me online at tanyashafer.com, offleasharts.com, or offleashwriting.com. This episode contains music by Ian Morgenstern from the copyright-free site Pixabay. Until next time, take care and stay off leash.